Tonight, as we uh, come to Mark chapter 7, we are going to pick back up in our, our series of looking at the life of Jesus through this gospel, through the gospel of Mark. And I want to read to you from uh, chapter 7, verse 24 through 37. And uh, this passage comes right after the most lengthy conflict passage in the Gospel of Mark between Jesus and the religious leaders. And he's been in a predominantly Jewish setting. But with this set of episodes, the next three little stories, Jesus moves out of Jewish territory into Gentile territory. And it's a striking contrast where we begin to learn and see hints that this Jesus hasn't come just for a particular kind of person, from a a particular kind of place, or a particular kind of background, or set of credentials, or heritage. But this Jesus has come for the whole world. Let me read for us from Mark 7. I'll begin at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre. And went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephthatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. At this point in the story... It's worth asking as we approach the middle of the gospel, which we'll come to in in, in chapter 8. How are people reacting to Jesus? What is is he, he facing? At this point, I think it's safe to say that Jesus is constantly pursued by crowds, huge crowds. He continues to face the opposition and the stubborn resistance of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes as we saw earlier in chapter 7. And he even still faces the bewilderment, the confusion, the lack of understanding of his disciples. And so, 
what does he do? He heads off to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which are both on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They're east, or actually west, northwest of Galilee, where Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry time. It's probably somewhere around 60 miles or so northwest of where he ordinarily does his ministry. So he presumably, the text tells us here, he goes there to get a break, to get some time away. In verse 24, it says, He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. No sooner does he get there than in verse 25 we read that immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. What what does this woman know about Jesus? How did she hear about Jesus? Who does she think this Jesus is? Perhaps she was in the crowd that we we first read about in chapter 3, which mentions this great crowd that following Jesus, and some of the people in that crowd were from this area, from Tyre and Sidon. Or maybe she knew somebody who was in that crowd, and she's heard about Jesus, about his message, and particularly his power to heal, to rescue someone in danger. Whatever the case may be, this woman, along with the deaf and mute man that we see later in the story, whatever the case is, both of these stories here, they show us how to come to Jesus and what to expect if and when you do. How to come to Jesus and what you can expect if and when you do. And Mark here teaches us in this passage that When you come to Jesus, you will experience three things. You will experience the challenge of Jesus, the sympathy of Jesus, and then the burden of Jesus. So first, let's look together at the challenge of Jesus in the story with the Syrophoenician woman. Let's look for just a moment a little bit more closely at how Mark describes this woman. He gives quite a bit of detail. He says that she is a Syrophoenician that she's a Gentile, which would mean that she, from a Jewish perspective, is a pagan, not a child of Abraham, not an Israelite, that she's a woman, and that she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. I think it would be hard in the first century to come up with a more thorough list, at least according to Jewish beliefs and practices, To describe a non-Jew who has no social or religious standing, who is unclean and totally disqualified to approach a Jewish person, let alone a rabbi like Jesus. But amazingly, she doesn't seem to care. She doesn't care that she lacks any of these qualifications, any of the right background, any of the credentials to come to Jesus. She comes anyway. She's pleading. She will not be put off. She does not and will not take no for an answer. Can you understand why? Here is a mother, and her daughter is in great danger. And she has heard about Jesus. One writer describes this woman's behavior like this. There are crowds 
I'm sorry, there, there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage. Because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. I think there is a profound principle about what it means and what it looks like to come to Jesus when you stop and reflect on this woman and how she comes to Jesus. You see, coming to Jesus means forgetting who you are, where you're from, what credentials you have to receive from Him, only what He can give. You see, coming to Jesus means that you lay down everything You come to him with nothing, and you plead from him at his feet. Have you done that? Is that how you understand the way that your relationship, if you are a follower of Jesus, works? That to be in a relationship with Jesus means that you are utterly unqualified, you have no credentials, and you simply come to him pleading for His mercy and for His grace. If you haven't done that, what's holding you back? Or perhaps you find yourself oscillating back and forth between the two. Sometimes you find yourself coming to Jesus, asking for help, and other times you find yourself kind of giving Him a stiff arm, not wanting to come to Him. Frustrated, disappointed, maybe even heart of heart. What holds you back? I think one one answer to that question could be perhaps even Jesus' response to this woman. How does he respond to her when she comes to him like this? Look in verse 27. He said to her, "Let let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That sounds inviting. Just what you would expect Jesus to say. See, Jesus' response, I think, it seems harsh. It seems totally out of character from what we've seen already. It sounds like a terrible insult. And what are we we to make of this? I I want to point out a few things and hopefully help you to see what Jesus is actually doing here. It's something very different than how I think how it initially reads. But first, I want you to remember for a moment, if this sounds so out of character, let's remember what we have seen already from Jesus. If you remember back in chapter chapter 1, Jesus meets a leper who's unclean. He's isolated. He's not welcome anywhere in the community. And this man comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And you know what Jesus says to him? He says... I will be clean. And he touches the man and he's cleaned. Or take when Jesus is accused by the religious leaders for eating with tax collectors and sinners, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Or take when Jesus and his disciples head off to get some time alone after they've been sent out to carry on his ministry. When they go do that, immediately where they get to this desolate place, a huge crowd shows up, 
And Jesus looks at this crowd like sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them. So unless we're willing, willing to say that this is a totally different Jesus from what we've already seen, which I think would be honestly not a fair reading, we need to ask, what is he doing? Why does he say this to this woman? But let's notice along with that, in this response that Jesus gives to let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, what kind of setting does that imply or does it presuppose? If you think about it for a moment, it's, it's a picture of a mealtime dinner in a home where there's a family sitting around a dinner table having dinner. And they have a few household pets, dogs, sitting nearby. And as often the case with children at a dinner table, there are crumbs that fall off the table. This is an everyday, ordinary picture. Which when I think we notice that, we begin to see here what Jesus is doing. He's not, he's not insulting her. He's telling her a parable. He's telling her a parable because if you remember what a parable is, a parable, it is an indirect form of communication that opens up a back door, as it were, to see your life in a new light. In other words, parables allow us to see what we would otherwise not see. Now, I have to, we have to say and, and acknowledge and admit and point out that when Jesus uses this word dogs here, it is very well documented in the first century that Jews refer to Gentiles as dogs. It was, it was an insult. It was not a compliment at all. But what's very interesting about what Jesus does here is he actually uses a different word than is ordinarily used in that in that insult that's often leveled at Gentiles. He uses a word that describes a household pet. Which goes along with the idea here of the, of the imagery that he's introducing with this parable. And I want you to think for a moment, how does this parable hit you? Before we look at the woman's response. We'll look at the woman's response, but I want you to think for a moment... How does this parable hit you? I think I want, to, I want to suggest to you that there are perhaps, there may be more, but at least two. At least two ways, I think, this parable will hit you. The first one goes like this. How dare Jesus speak to her this way? Perhaps you might even find in this parable, in this interchange, uh, ammunition or even evidence for what bothers you so much about the Bible, especially when it comes to the way it can talk about and speak about and describe the way that women are treated. It can make you think, how dare Jesus speak this way? No one deserves to be spoken to like that. Perhaps even you might have a visceral personal reaction of, I don't, I don't have to stand for this. If this is how the Bible talks about people, I I don't want anything to do with this Jesus. 
But the other response you might have might go something like this. See, I knew there was a limit to God's grace. I knew. I've just been waiting to see it. But I knew that there are some people who are just far, who are too far gone. Could it be that this Jesus who says all these great things and does these great things, could I be too far gone? Could I be too defiled? Could I be too broken? Could I be beyond the reach of this Jesus? I think those are the two main responses that we might have. One, we could try to describe them if we want to put them together. You see, one of them is a a response that sort of, it exposes a superiority complex. This violates my rights. You should never speak to me that way. I don't deserve that. Or, it highlights an inferiority complex where shame and despair lead you to believe that this Jesus simply can't reach you. Either way, here is what's happening. There are essentially two ways to fail to accept this challenge that Jesus brings. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's testing the integrity of this woman's faith. He's testing what does she know about him? Does she see him just as a miracle worker, as a healer, as a magnetic personality? Or does she see in him the Messiah, the Savior of the world? See, the two ways that I think we can respond to this really are two variations on a theme of pride. See, one is being too proud because you don't believe you need what Jesus gives. Or, the other is being too proud because you don't believe you deserve what Jesus gives. This parable is meant to challenge you. It's meant to walk right into the center of your life and get you to respond to this Jesus. And as it does that, to bring to the surface your heart. What do you believe about him? But even as important, what do you think about yourself? Are you beyond the need for his grace? Are you below the need for his grace? Or somewhere in between? So when we come to look at this woman's response, notice what she does. In contrast to a a superiority complex, I don't deserve this, or an inferiority complex, I'm unworthy of this. Notice what she does. She doesn't bow, bow up at Jesus, but neither does she shrivel up and walk away. Instead, notice what she does. She reads herself into the parable. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, we've looked at parables in Mark already, and again and again, what we have seen in the parables is the way to understand a parable is to, how do you put yourself in the parable? How does that parable begin to weave its way into your life so that you begin to see him differently, you begin to see his kingdom differently, you begin to see yourself differently, leading you to to faith and repentance in him? 
She reads herself into this parable, and in fact, she's the first person in Mark's gospel who we could say actually hears Jesus and understands him. Which is remarkable when you remember this is a woman from Syrophoenicia, from a non-Jewish territory, quite a ways away. She didn't grow up in a synagogue, hearing the word of God read and preached. And here she sees in Jesus something that even the religious leaders don't see. See, this, the brief parable, one writer puts it like this, that the brief parable of the children and dogs at the table has disclosed to her the mystery of the kingdom of God. She's not distant and aloof, attempting to maintain her position and control. She does what Jesus commands of those who would receive the kingdom and experience the word of God. She enters the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it. Or let's put it, try to put it in first person. What is this woman actually saying in her response? It's as if she was saying this. She says, yes, Lord, I understand. I have no prior claim to your mercy. I am not numbered among the children. I have no right to sit at the table and feast on the food that you have set before your children. I do not want that. I'm satisfied, Lord, with the crumbs. All I am asking is that you will let me have one crumb from your table. Then I'll be satisfied. Heal my daughter, please. I know she's not in your family. I know she's not numbered among the children. We are the dogs who wait for the crumbs. But one crumb is all I'm asking for. You see, whatever this woman has heard about Jesus, she understands and believes in the purpose of Jesus as Israel's Messiah. As the Christ. Better than the disciples do. Better than the religious leaders do. The ones who you would think would see in Jesus. The promised Messiah. She sees in Jesus. That the blessings that God has promised to his people. Can and will bubble over. For those just like her. She understands the storyline of the Bible. That. God through Abraham will bless the nations. And in Jesus, she is experiencing the fulfillment of that very promise in this encounter with Jesus. And as he sees this woman's response, he says to her, in a word, you can go home. In effect, he says, because you understand, you have put your faith in me. You may go home. Your child is healed. And she goes home and discovers that, in fact, her daughter has been healed. Do you see why you need this this story of this woman? As abrasive and perhaps off-putting as this interchange is, Jesus, through this woman, encounter with this woman, is really beginning to peel back the layers of her own hearts. I don't know about you, but when I read to you that sort of first-person account of trying to put into words this woman's response, I have to say that sort of pricks me. I don't respond to Jesus and approach him like that. In fact, if I'm honest, I so often come to Jesus, and perhaps maybe you do too, with a sense of entitlement. 
To come to Jesus with this kind of humility, this kind of trust is a supernatural thing. See, this woman shows us the only proper posture for anyone coming to Jesus. And the good news, though, is that the abundance of God's mercy and grace doesn't come to us in crumbs left on the floor. See, God lavishes His grace upon us. And the question is, how does He do that? And here, Mark answers that question for us in the next little story with this deaf man who also can't speak. See, the context for this second story is also in a Gentile region, but it's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where the previous story takes place. And we've already encountered this this area, the area of the region of the Decapolis back in chapter 5 when we saw the the demoniac, the demon-possessed man. And in that situation, that story ended with the people begging Jesus to leave, terrified by what he he did in saving that man, rescuing that man. But here, in this situation, the people of this region are begging Jesus to heal their friend. This is a pretty radical change in attitude in the lives of these people, which stands in stark contrast, again, to the disciples and the religious leaders. But notice for a moment here, as we look at this story, there's a very significant difference between the way that Jesus heals this man and how he healed the, the daughter in the previous story. In the previous story, he heals her with a word. That's it. In this story, you look in verse 33 and 34, there are a number of things that he does. He takes him aside from the crowd privately. He puts his fingers into his ears. He spits on his hand and touches his tongue. He looks up to heaven. This is just kind of weird. It's very different. Why does he do all of this? You know, it's important to remember that in every single miracle we've seen from Jesus, from the cleansing of the leper to the calming of the storm to raising Jairus' daughter to the healing of the, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter just previously, there's been no sense that Jesus is working, some, working up some incantation or performing some miracle worker ritual. We never get the sense that Jesus has to do that in order to demonstrate his power. So the question is, why does he do these things here in this situation with this man? The reason he does these things isn't for him, but it's for the man. He does all these things to identify with the man and to speak to him. It's sign language. Jesus here is entering into this man's world in a way that he can understand. So when Jesus spoke to him in the language he could understand, it's like sign language. The fingers placed in his ears and then removed meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. The spitting and touching of the man's tongue meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth. The place... The glance up to heaven meant it's God alone who is able to do this for you. Do you see the sympathy of Jesus here? His identification with this man? 
This is an incredible picture of tenderness. He pulls the man aside in private. He doesn't make a spectacle out of him. He doesn't use it to demonstrate his power. He pulls him aside in private. And he enters into his very experience and touches him and looks for him. So this man might understand what it is that Jesus is doing. Every gesture that Jesus makes is suited to meet the needs and capacities and realities of this man's life. See, here's the point I want you to see from this story. Jesus comes to us and he responds to us in exactly the way that we need him to. And sometimes it will challenge us, like in his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. And sometimes it will melt us with tenderness and sympathy. But notice for a moment in in verse 34, as Jesus was healing the deaf man and looking to heaven, verse 34 says that he sighed. See, even as he dialogues with the Syrophoenician woman and he heals the deaf deaf man, there's tension. There's tension mounting in the story. Jesus' ministry, it's building. It's spreading. It's overwhelming. Which is why we see Jesus' desire for solitude in verse 24 and even his charge to the people in verse 36 to be quiet. The weight of ministry reaches an audible groan in verse 34. Even as Jesus sympathizes with this man, identifies with him, and heals him. See, this is the burden of Jesus. At every point along the story of the gospel, as you see it unfold, this weight, this burden that Jesus bears in his ministry becomes more and more palpable. And the word for sigh here, it's actually more accurately a deep moan. It's a moan of anguish or pain. And it's worth asking, why does Jesus, why is he in anguish as he heals this man? Why isn't this a moment of joy and celebration? And the answer is that there's a cost for Jesus' healing. And Mark signals this for us, not only by this this sigh or this anguish, but in the phrase deaf and had a speech impediment, in that phrase, in describing the situation of this man, Mark uses a word there that is used on only one place elsewhere in the Bible. It's used in Isaiah chapter 35, which we read from earlier. And in Isaiah chapter 35, it reads this. Verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And verse 6 continues, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, the experience of Isaiah 35 is in the man's experience here. This deaf man is able to hear. He's able to speak. And the context for Isaiah chapter 35 is is the coming of the Messiah and the day when God would rescue all of his people, Jew and Gentile, from every tribe and nation and tongue. Listen again here to what Isaiah 35 
verses, verse 4 through 6 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See, here's what Mark is saying to us in this story. Do you see the blind opening their eyes in Jesus' ministry? Do you see the deaf hearing? Do you hear the mute tongue shouting for joy? What this story tells us is that God has come to rescue you. That in Jesus Christ, God has come to save. But did you also notice that this passage in Isaiah 35, it also mentions God's coming judgment, His vengeance. See, if Isaiah 35 is about Jesus as Mark teaches here, then where's the judgment? The answer is found in this sigh, this moan of anguish and pain. Because here, Jesus, we don't see Jesus coming with a sword of judgment. Rather, what we see is Jesus coming to serve and to seek and to save the lost. He comes with his own body to bear judgment. On the cross, the beloved Son of God is forsaken like crumbs under the table so that we might enjoy the feast at his table as sons and daughters of the King. You see, here Mark gives us again, he gives us this challenge of Jesus to draw out our hearts, to help us to see him for who he is, but also ourselves for who we are. But he never does that without also coming back with the sympathy of Jesus, teaching us how and to what degree and to what lengths Jesus will enter in to your very life experience in order to show you his grace to bring you the gift of His mercy. All of which is burdensome to Him for you. That He would bear your sin on the cross so that you might enjoy God's blessing forever. I think when we begin to see these things about Jesus in this story, one of the final phrases in this passage begins to ring true. And I hope that it becomes more and more your daily confession that he has done all things well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the story. We give you thanks for the ways in which it challenges us, but also shows us how Jesus identifies with us. He sympathizes with us. The ways in which he communicates with us. And Father, we ask especially that you would help us to find in Jesus the good news of the kingdom. We pray that you would help us to see in him the challenge that we need and the sympathy that we need. And most of all, that we would see the cost that it was to him, the burdens that he has borne and his own body on the tree so that we might go free so that we might experience life as it was meant to be, through faith in Him, in perfect fellowship with You. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.